sola gratia. It's why in our notes, um, when we start with sola scriptura, I will um, give you scripture passages for each thing that we talk about. Uh, it was interesting this week, uh, I do a discipleship men's study with a couple of guys, and we've been going through 1 Timothy, and I gave them the homework that we had last week, uh, the, the blog entry um, that talked about other sheep and was universalistic, for those of you who were here and remember that. I gave them that last week as an assignment, and I said, do a theological review, and it was great. They went over it with their wives, and I was asking them how it went, one of them said, well, my wife said, where does that say that in Scripture? <laughs> and I said, good, that, that's, a great, that's a great way to respond. You hear a statement about God, you hear a statement about faith, about salvation, and you say, okay, it sounds wonderful, or it doesn't sound wonderful, something doesn't sound right, uh, where does it say that in Scripture? Hey, Scott, would you mind closing that door? Tammy uh, got sidetracked. Or she might be out there still? Or did she go back to do Sunday school? Okay, um, so sola scriptura, and the scriptures tell us that man is totally depraved. Human beings are without hope, as we say in our membership vows, without hope except in the mercy of God. So we talked about that. Sola fide, uh, by faith alone. Salvation comes to us through faith alone. Unconditional election. Because we are so depraved, because we can't save ourselves, uh, God, out of His divine goodness and wonderful mercy and grace, chooses a people to be His. Um, it is not conditioned upon us, our response, or our worthiness of it. So we say that we are saved by faith alone, uh, through grace, or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and so this morning we get to sola gratia, grace alone. And so in your um, outline... I think when I started this class, I said, why are we doing this? Because the more precious our adoption is to us, the more safe and secure we are to all manner of rebellion against God. Our adoption should be precious to us. Uh, as, we, as this unfolds, we realize that our adoption was planned by God before we were even created, before the world was even brought together. Uh, and as we think about that, um, the necessity, I hate, I hate to put it that way, but the necessity or the place of sin and rebellion becomes clearer. Had uh, mankind not been given the ability to rebel, the ability to sin, we would have known God as good, uh, as uh, a good creator, worthy of worship. But we come to know His grace because we sin against Him. I often tell people this, you'll know the strength of a relationship when you have been wronged. Not the strength of a relationship because you agree on so many things and you get along so well, but the strength of a relationship when you have been wronged or when that other person isn't quite as attractive to you, isn't quite as nice, is not treating you the way you feel like you deserve. And so we come to know grace after sin. And so when we talk about God's covenant, oftentimes we divide it into two covenants, a covenant of works, um, which God entered into when he created us and said, here's the garden, here's what you should do, here's what you can't do. Um, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, 
everything is good for food except this tree. And when you eat that tree, you'll surely die. So that was, we call that the covenant of works. Uh, in the last 50 years or so, a lot of uh, covenant theologians have changed it to calling it a covenant of creation, uh, in a sense, believing that, that it, at creation, God enters into a covenant. And though we break that covenant of works, and there's lots of different um, manifestations of that covenant, it unfolds through Adam and then uh, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. Uh, it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And Jeremiah says a new covenant he's, God is going to bring and he's going to write it on your heart. Um, so many of us like to think of it as one big covenant. God from creation had a plan at the end. But grace is necessary for salvation. And um, so we, we understand um, the necessity of it as we understand our depravity. Um, so Westminster Confession, question 34, I think that's in your notes. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace. And so God's free grace um, means he, he gives it to us uh, out of his uh, freedom, uh, and he is free to bestow it upon whoever he wants, whomever he wants, whenever he wants, and however he wants. Um, whereby, and I, and I put in there 1 John 3, 1, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privilege of the sons of God. So um, these doctrines of grace are cohesive. They're logically derived from Scripture and from our experiences. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Justification is a reminder. Uh, question 33, what is justification? It's an act of God's free grace. Notice the same wording there from question 34, an act of God's free grace. Justification, an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardoned all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So uh, uh, last week we looked at this ordo of salvation. And again, um, justification, it appears there right before adoption, but our adoption happens as we are justified. Um, so we talked about the negative and the positive aspect. Justification, the negative aspect is it pardons all our sins. The positive aspect is we receive, we are counted as righteous. The judgment is final and total. So do we owe God anything? That's the question. Do we owe God anything? We owe God everything. So we are, are we in his debt? Looking at me like it's a trick question, Rev. What's a free gift? Justification. justification is a free gift, but now being justified, belonging to him, do we owe him anything? Pardon me? Our total alliance. Our total alliance. Yeah, it's a trick question. It has to do with the word owe. We're not in his debt, in a sense, that, that uh, if we sin after we're saved, that there is more things that we have to go and do. And we have to go, have to go re-up. Um, or um, we stay saved by um, 
staying faithful and not committing certain sins. So in a sense, we owe him nothing in reference to our salvation. Do we owe him out of relationship, worship, obedience, love, gratitude? Yes, we owe him all of those things. Those, those things uh, we should feel an obligation to serve and love our God, but we don't feel that obligation in any way because uh, we are earning salvation. We are earning his favor. Um, that has all been earned by Christ. So grace alone, if you flip to the uh, next page in your notes, I have Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and that's what we have been using quite a bit. Uh, he writes, you were dead in trespasses and sins. So we've talked about that total depravity in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's who we were among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. OK, so those first three verses, they're dealing with that whole idea of total depravity. And verse four but God, being rich in mercy. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Really? Hmm. <laughs> mercy is what now? What did you say? Never heard that before. Mercy is deserved. Ah, there. Okay. Yeah, I was a little confused. Uh, so mercy, not getting the punishment that you deserve. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And oftentimes mercy carries with it um, some reasons. Have mercy. I was I was sick. Have mercy, I'm a victim, right? And um, we're, we are more apt to give people mercy when there's extenuating circumstances, aren't we? Um, you know, and, and, and so God being rich in mercy, he fleshes it out a little further. And mercy, mercy is that part of the gospel. I'm not going to be punished for my sins. Um, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Again, the beauty of that is God's love and mercy comes to us in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. So uh, the effectual call, that's, this, that's, that's where we get this part. He makes us alive. He uh, regenerates us um, by grace you have been saved. He throws that phrase in there. It almost doesn't seem to fit. Um, but it is as if, as if the apostle is saying, this is wonderful, this is great news. Just make sure you know it's by grace alone. Just make sure that all of these things happen to you. Uh, the reason when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and the Spirit regenerated your heart and breathed life into you uh, is because of God's grace. He raised us up in Him, seated Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that's justification. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why is God doing all of this? Because He wants to demonstrate His grace. Why do we have confession of sin in our worship service? Why do we treat that as part of worship? Because as we confess our sins, we are, we are, uh, we are expressing God's mercy and His grace.
We're, we're saying, here's who our God is. Uh, just as if we, would, if we would recommend a great orthodontist, a dentist, or a doctor, or an accountant, we would say, here's what he's done for me. Here's what she did for me. Here's what was wrong with me. Here's what they found. You need to go see this person. That's exactly what we do in our worship. We are showing his immeasurable grace. So when we get to the solo, soli dio, soli deo gloria, the last one of the solos, for God's glory alone, that's where this comes. Why is he doing this? Why is all of this happening? Why do we have anything in existence? All of it exists for the glory of God. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So there you have sola gratia and sola fide. By grace you have been saved through faith. Just to make it abundantly clear, this is not your own doing. He's talking about faith and salvation. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace alone is uh, what we hold on to as believers. It's what gives us comfort when the evil one reminds us of all of our failures, when we're frustrated at seemingly lack of our own growth spiritually. It is grace alone. We are not saved by our sanctification. We are saved by grace alone. 1 Corinthians 4, a church full of division. The apostle writes, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Grace alone. Um, God's riches at Christ's expense. I don't know if I have that written in there. That's one way, an acrostic that I use to remember. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. Uh, Will someone pull up Romans 5.20 and read that for us? Jason, you got it? Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Man. So another reason we do confession of sin is where sin increased, as the apostle writes, grace increased all the more. So I know I talk about this in our new member class, but my hope is that the longer that you're part of Three Rivers, the longer any Christian walks with God, we will think more of His grace. It won't be something that we look back and say, wow, wow, I really needed His grace back in the day. You know, after I got out of college and I'd done all this and that, man, I, I really needed His grace. Um, that we will be like the apostle. I live by His grace. I rely on His grace. It means more to me today than it did way back then. Grace alone. And um, I put in there alone because it's not grace plus Many of us live our lives as if our salvation, maybe not our salvation, but God's delight with us uh, depends on us. Grace kind of gets you in the family, gets you in the door. Uh, You're invited to sit at the table with God, but it's your works, your obedience, the way you have kept his law, which makes him delight in you. No, it is all of Christ, his delight in us, is all of Christ. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go over the history. But uh, uh, do I have R.C. Sproul's quote in there for you? 
Perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for our salvation. It is difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people. I know I've told you this before, but when I planted in California, people would say, wow, they really need a church there. You know, they really need the gospel there. They would say it. And sometimes they would say it in a sense that we're in the South and we don't need it nearly as much as those folks need it out there. Um, yeah, um, it's for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to, I said, uh, misspelled it there. We want to earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think we'll go to heaven because we deserve to be there. Living in the river of God's grace. Do I have that written down there? So um, I know I've used that term here before. And one of the things that was great, we came to Three Rivers. You all already had T-shirts that said grace changes everything. And um, that had been our theme in St. Louis. And that had been our theme in the church we planted in Pasadena. Grace changes everything. Um, The river of grace was a concept that I got from Rosemary Miller. Rosemary and Jack were missionaries in Africa. Um, and she would talk about living with God is, is like being in a river. And so I'd often use that term, river of grace. And the first church I served, I would use it all the time. Uh, and I had one assistant that was just, well, all of them were really amazing. Um, and one that worked with me for a long time. And every once in a while, she'd make a mistake or something wouldn't get done or something would get forgotten. And then I would look at her and she would be she would beat herself up, you know, like, it's OK, it's OK. River of grace, river of grace, I would tell her. But one day she said to me, yeah, Mark, I know. But you always make sure and let me know when I'm living in your river of grace. <laughs> like, yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, and in some sense, I wasn't offering free grace. Was I? I was. I was saying just, just so you know, uh, I'm being good to you right now, and you don't deserve it. And yet, um, how true of our relationship with the Holy God is that? We're living in His river of grace all the time. There are moments when we know it. There are moments when we feel it. There are moments when He drives us back to it. But we never get out of it in this existence. We are always living in this river of His grace. Um, Historically, in the 4th century, Augustine and Pelagius, so you might even hear the the term if you're reading any kind of theology, Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, goes all the way back to the 4th century. Pelagius did not like the early church fathers, really didn't like the gospel. Um, and so he taught uh, that uh, uh, passe non pecari, that it was possible for us to not sin. In, in a sense that um, Adam was really a bad example and Jesus was a good example. And um, so Jesus came to live that life so that we too could live that life. We could see his example and we would follow his example. Uh, Pelagius was uh, frustrated with free grace and thought it led to antinomianism. And he would say things, as, as, and I've quoted Finney down here, uh, Finney, further down in your notes, in these aspects, then the sinning Christian and the unconverted sinner 
are upon precisely the same ground. I'm jumping ahead, but that, that, was, that was pure Pelagianism, that we lose our salvation, that it really is dependent upon us uh, and our good works. And um, so Augustine would teach non passe, non peccare, that it was not possible for us to not sin. Um, Thomas Bradwardine, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 14th century, uh, wrote, The Case of God Against the New Pelagians. So this doctrine, uh, in various forms, hits the church time and time and time again. And I don't know if I would be out of place but saying that the majority of evangelicals in the United States are semi-Pelagian, that we tend to think that we are accepted by what we do. We tend to think, um, and, and as a result, so we see a lot of the, a lot of the things that happen in churches, especially in our, in our country. Um, I have down there the church growth movement, for instance. The church growth movement focusing particularly on people. What do people want? What do they need? Today, I was trying to decide if I wore this shirt last week, so I went on our YouTube channel. <laughs> I went on our YouTube channel, I looked at the last three weeks, you know, and I scrolled to where I'm preaching. I'm like, yes, okay, I didn't wear this one then, I didn't wear this, okay, I'm good to go. Um, and uh, <laughs> as I'm scrolling, I, I see on our channel that, you know, the next up recommended. I'm like, no, I don't want them to watch that one. And um, it was Joel Osteen, How to Deal with Difficult People. And I'm like, no, I don't want someone to go from, you know, the gospel to uh, how to. Uh, but anyway, about four or five of the next ones, I'm like, no, no. And so as the administrator, I'm like, don't recommend this one. Don't recommend this one. Don't recommend this one. Um, but even uh, so down here where it says WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's Pelagianism. What would Jesus do? And, and so we see Jesus not primarily as the one who rescues our soul, the job of the church being uh, to give the people of God the, the gospel and the means of grace and the sacrament. We see more the church being a social construct. Uh, Talladega Nights. I know none of you have seen that. The, is that B Ricky Bobby? Oh, Ricky Bobby. Ricky Bobby, what did he like to think of? He liked to think of the baby Jesus. He liked to pray to the baby Jesus, didn't he? Dear baby Jesus. Um, and uh, what happens to his boys? When his boys need to start acting, everybody's dying laughing back there. You're all, you're all living in the river of grace right now, just so you know. <laughs> right? What happens? They take the, grandma, okay, again, that's just, I mean, it's typical, right? Grandma, like, I'll take these boys to church. Put them in the choir, and they'll learn to behave. That's what the church is for. Teaches how to behave. Um, uh, so the church, road move, church growth movement revivalism, which uh, 19th century, that was Charles Finney. Um, in the Second Great Awakening, uh, the, the revival movement, it was such a sense of it is uh, upon us to choose what is right, and, uh, and it is upon us as ministers of the gospel to create an environment um, uh, of hyper-emotionalism environment that causes those sinners to turn their hearts. So it's interesting in the First Great Awakening, I, I think I have there Jonathan Edwards, 17th century. 
one of his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Charles Finney in the 19th century, the Second Great Awakening, sinners bound to change their own hearts. Um, so uh, it, it's really important that we get back to grace alone. Um, that it is grace alone that saves sinners, not grace plus. Not grace that gets us in and then we stay in by our own good works. Um, what's the attraction? Well, I think the attraction is, um, is uh, it, it does give us um, grounds for boasting. Uh, and I find even in myself, it's hard to not judge our works by the response of people. Um, and, and so even in our country, you see if there's a, a church that can do all kinds of things and feed all kinds of people, they must be doing something right. That's what I hear all the time. They must be doing something right. And in my mind, I'm like, that's not necessarily so. <laughs> it's not necessarily so. Where do the biggest crowds go in America? They go to football games, right? I mean, people are going there and they're, they're enjoying themselves and they're having a great time. Does that mean everything going on there is right? Or, or uh, an ACDC concert, you know, they could probably still fill auditoriums all throughout Mississippi and Alabama because every radio station still plays all of their stuff, you know. Um, so, it, but the attraction is um, you can see things happening. You feel a sense of, uh, of pride in your ability. Uh, it, I, I mean, I get emails all the time. Here are the five steps to make your church grow over COVID. And um, none of them have said humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit, uh, prayer, repentance, preaching of the truth. No, it's all been uh, ways that we can manipulate people. Um, now, do we want our church to grow? Absolutely. I mean, I, ab absolutely. Scotty says, I always preach better when the place is full. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm sorry, but... Uh, it's just maybe it's true, um, but absolutely, right? We're, we're moving towards a great crowd of witnesses that no man can number, right? And, and if the Lord uh, gives us the blessing of seeing people come to know him, it, it's one of our greatest joys. Um, but the semi-Pelagianism has resulted in also in political movements. Um, and, and so I face that quite a bit at times, these pressures from the church. We've got to make sure, pastors, you've got to make sure that your people vote Christian, vote right, and, and here's, the, here's the slate. Um, even in our own alliance here, um, we just, just a few weeks ago, a few months ago in our meeting, who can we get, which pastors can we get on the school board to change things? Now, should we serve on those things? Absolutely. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but that's not how we believe change happens. Uh, we don't believe that's the job of the church. It is the job of the church for Christian parents to educate their kids. Um, but anyway, uh, last quote. This is from Michael Horton, and it is his, this was back quite a few years ago, but it was his take on how this Pelagianism has crept in. And again, Pelagianism being grace plus. So just think about that, grace plus. Plus, uh, the human being is no longer regarded as in every way dependent upon or even answerable to a creator, but is treated as a self-sufficient creator in his or her own right. Uh, 
Isn't that true? Constructing reality in whatever shape, autonomous reason, volition, and emotion determine. Sin, instead of being viewed as an offense against a holy God, is seen merely as wrongs committed against other people. Um, or simply as offenses against oneself. How many times have you heard people say, I just can't forgive myself? I mean, you, you, mean, you might have said that. I'm really having trouble forgiving myself. And I mean, sometimes I'll say, well, that's okay, um, because you don't need to forgive yourself. Your greatest problem is that God would forgive you and other people would forgive you. When you say forgive yourself, you're actually saying, I'm kind of disappointed in myself. Uh, my pride has been injured. My view of how good I am has been injured. And I think sometimes that's a great thing. Um, does that make sense to you guys, what I'm saying there? Have I lost you? Brenda, are you quite finished? <laughs> Back over here, folks. Uh, this requires a program for individual and social transformation, not the announcement of a divine rescue. Theologically, this combination of Pelagianism and anti-supernaturalism has swallowed much of Protestantism whole. Further study. In, uh, probably in order, Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges is, in my opinion, the number one book that a Christian should read after the Bible. <laughs> if I'd have you read one book, uh, I'd have you read Transforming Grace. Phenomenal. Uh, just, I had every intern, I had every, <laughs> when I should do uh, marital counseling, I'd say, this is, the, this is my marriage book. And I always thought if I have any kind of um, authority over a person, I have them read that. By Jerry Bridges, Transforming Grace. It starts off with a performance treadmill, and I probably could read that chapter once a week and just need, need to be reminded of it. Gentle and Lowly uh, is right up there, too. Abba's Child by Brennan Manning is, is amazing as well. Uh, one I didn't put on there is another one by Brennan Manning, The Return of the Prodigal. Um, they're all, they're all great um, for our understanding of grace. And we just really, we have to just admit, we just don't like it. I don't want Tammy to be gracious to me. I want to earn her love. I want to feel like she owes me. Um, I, I, we, just, we just don't like it. That's the beauty of justification because it, it moves us from being just forgiven to being righteous in his sight. But all of that comes from him through grace alone. Questions? Yeah, and you probably heard me talk about that a few times. That sinner's prayer, I tell you, we treat it like it's, uh, it's um, a magical spell in our culture. <laughs> get him to say it, get him to say it. Repeat these words after me. And it's hard, sometimes it's hardly even like, do you know what these words mean? No, just, just say them. You know, once you say it, once you claim it, you're, you're good to go. Um, so, yeah. And it is interesting when I do funerals <clears throat> to see what people point to. I uh, think grandpa's in heaven. 
uh, because he walked the aisle and um, as opposed to grandpa relied solely upon the grace of God. Uh, so, all right, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.